So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. So over the last 30 years, I've cultivated a a wonderful list of mentors, friends, teachers that have helped me make really good decisions and make smart decisions when it comes to creating wealth. Today, I want to talk to you about the lessons I learned along the way, the, the systems, the structure, the mindset, the principles, the things that these people were able to install in me over the last 30 years. And, and by I say install, like I had to be open to it. Like I hope you are today as you're listening to this show. Um, people that, that I was able to, as the old line goes, ride on the shoulders of others, learn from their mistakes, and maybe try to minimize, and I certainly did in some cases, minimize making those same mistakes myself. So if you are on the path and you have a desire to create wealth. And I know when I say wealth, there's a lot of people who say, let's talk about wealthy in health and relationships. I'm talking about money. I'm talking about net worth. I'm talking about cash flow. I'm talking about changing the course of your financial destiny forever, maybe impacting your family tree in such a positive way that a hundred years from now, your family's like, what? What did great grandma do? What did great, great grandpa do? Like that kind of stuff. So if you dig uh, sort of the art and science of investing and the psychology around money, you're going to love this show. If that's not your bag, I would just encourage you to turn it off and you know I'll see you on the next show. But I'm going to assume you're with me. So some of those people that impacted me that, that you're going to glean some of these insights from, obviously my dad, who you know who that is. You probably don't know my stepmom. Um, my stepmom moved here from Honolulu at 18, met a family friend named Billy who owns thousands of doors uh, in Southern California. And she taught, or he taught, my stepmom basically how to buy money with, or buy real estate with no money down. And, you know, back in the days, we're talking like the 70s, you know, that was a thing back then. I think it was Robert Allen who wrote that book or another who wrote that book, you know, how to buy real estate, no money down. She got obsessed with that. And then that obsession became, you know, really her only, as she would jokingly say, my only job was just owning real estate. She taught me so many lessons that even continues today as I look at deals to run it past her and get her perspective. Um, Bill Mitchell, my mentor who passed several years ago, who started multiple companies and, and his strategy was like investing in businesses and people. So we can talk a lot about that. Brian Tracy, one of my early mentors, uh, you know, did a wonderful job just expanding my thinking, getting me to set bigger goals. Um, my tax strategist, Manny, who's been by my side for like 22 years, I constantly am asking him, what are your wealthiest clients doing right now? And then I just shut up and listen. Uh, financial planners from, you know, people at Merrill or Wells or, you know, JP Morgan, just, you know, people that I've worked with over the last, you know, some couple decades that have just, again, yes, sometimes they're trying to push a product. I get that. You might have the same thought. I certainly do. But being able to ask those people, what are the wealthiest people around you doing when in many cases, when I was asking these questions, I was not 
in a position that I'm in today, right? And and trust me, like I'm good today. I want to be extraordinary in the future, but that's a whole other story. All right. And then of course, <clears throat> I got to give a shout out to Steve Azonian, uh, Joe Hanauer, Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, Spencer Raskoff, uh, many of these uh, you know friends of mine that were able to say to me, you know, you can invest in businesses also, whether it's startup companies where you can make a difference, right? And and that's a whole other side of it. But I just got to give a nod to all of them because at the end of the day, like I am a sum total of all the mentors and all the people that I've been able to curate throughout my lifetime that have helped guide me in some of these principles. My buddy, Claude Yacol, right? His daughter working right here inside the studio. Claude, who has amassed a, you know, a terrific portfolio of commercial real estate and, and just to be able to run deals past him and get his insight. That is really, if you wanted to understand my superpower, it is that. It is curating people, asking good questions, listening intently, getting advice, and then ultimately pulling the trigger and making decisions. But with all that said, I started having this conversation with a bunch of my elite clients in February of this, this year. And it was kind of a continuation of one of my most popular videos on YouTube that's got 13 or 14 million views, which for me is a lot. And, and that was like, what do the wealthiest people do with their money? And it was really more of a, a system and a structure conversation. So if you're listening to this and you've ever watched that show, please leave a comment. Let me know if you've seen that one. It's probably my most popular on YouTube. But again, it was all about systems and structure. This is how you should set up your money. This is how you should set up your banking, right? Put yourself tactically in a position to win. Today's going to be a little bit different, right? Playing on that same theme, like what, what's the right mindset? What are some of the tactics? What are some of the things that I've witnessed that the wealthiest people I know do? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, originally I wrote it down as, as this thing, like why you'll never be rich. And I know that's probably a polarizing thought and not why you're listening to my podcast or watching this on YouTube. But, but I was really thinking like the information is everywhere, so if the information was enough, if the information was enough, you would literally just, I would hand you uh, a CD. I would send you a link to a video. You would watch it and you become wealthy. Well, we all know that's, it's not enough. You have to change your mindset. You have to change your standards. You have to change your beliefs. You have to make some fundamental shifts because the reality is there's this old line that if you took all the money, all the wealth around the world, and you took it away from the people that had created it or their families had you know, given it to them over time, that eventually over time, it would all fall right back into the same people's hands. And, and the reason why is because those people understand the principles, the mindset, the strategy, the systems, and the structure for creating and maintaining wealth. And the vast majority of people around the planet simply don't. So I don't know where you find yourself in the journey. I, I am still a work in progress. I am still asking as many questions, learning as much as I can, cultivating more people into, you know, into my sort of community of advisors. And you know, so I'm on that journey and I hope you are too. So, so let's talk about it. I started writing down, you know, what's the number one, what's the number one thing that I see people that never seem to create the kind of wealth that they desire. And that is, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, it is most people can't define what it is that they want. Most people are unwilling to define what it is that they want, or they loosely define it. And the last time I checked, you very rarely hit a target that's moving. You rarely ever achieve a goal that's wishy-washy. You've got to get clear. Like Napoleon Hill, I, I'm sure I've got Thinking Grow Rich right here on my desk. The number one principle is definite major purpose 
right? Now, I'm not saying this is the only purpose in your life. Again, we're talking about money. We're talking about wealth. But if I challenge you right now to say, what does it mean for you to be wealthy? What does that mean to you? And, and I always hear things like freedom, choice, and then I'll, some people say no stress. And I'm like, listen to me. <laughs> I, I know people with a lot of money that have stress and I know people that have no money and have stress. If you got a choice, I'm going with the money and stress versus no money and stress, but stress is everywhere, right? You're not gonna eliminate that. Um, but what is your definition? Like, how do you define it? Um, what I'll say to people is, is basically like on a tactical level, I'll say, what is your outcome? What do you want and buy when? What is your outcome? What do you want and buy when? Which means, hey, I'd like to have this much, right? And again, I'm gonna give you some, I'm gonna give you some parameters because the smartest people will not just say, I'd like a net worth of $5 million. The smartest people are gonna say, I want a net worth of $5 million by this time period, right? So I wanna achieve that goal in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever your ambition is. But the even more I almost said smarter, that'd be funny. The even more intelligent, the even more focused people will say, I want a net worth of $5 million and I want it in five years and I want cash flow of $1,000 a month. Now there's a big difference between having a net worth of $5 million and having a net worth of $5 million with $1,000 a month in cash flow. But the, the really, the really intelligent people say something more like this. I want a net worth of $5 million that I want to achieve in the next five years. I want cash flow of $1,000 a month that covers all my expenses. Now you can fill in the blank with how much net worth you want in what time frame you want with the cash flow you desire. But the one at the end is it seems to be the thing that when I break down like the truly wealthy people, and it doesn't matter what their net worth is, right? Some are worth $10 million, some are worth hundreds of millions, some are worth billions. They all say the same thing. The game is that your life is set up where your investments cover everything in your life, that your investments, your cash flow covers everything in your life. So you're living essentially in an, in an environment where you don't have to work. Now, what if I told you every single one of them works their face off because they love it because it's a game, but the hook is they don't have to. Now, you could be listening to this right now and you could be in your 70s, you could be in your 50s, you could be in your 20s. It doesn't make a difference. I would challenge you right now if, that if you're unwilling to define what it is that you want, I would not go further in this podcast, right? Because if you can't first start with, it, you know, I don't know, shut up, write down a number. Just say, I want to be worth $10 million, $2 million, a million dollars, whatever it is. And by the way, when you get to the goal, can you adjust the goal? The answer is, of course. What if I told you that when I was 25, I wrote down, I want to be worth a million dollars by the time I'm 30. And it was just one of those like Brian Tracy, my dad, like Hector, you got to set goals. You got to write them down. You got to put it on your bathroom mirror. You got to you know, get focused on it, get obsessed about it. So I did all that. Well, what if I told you I didn't achieve that goal? That it actually took me until I was 31 before I achieved that goal when my true net worth, my assets after all my debts totaled a million dollars. But the bummer was because I never wrote down I wanted cash flow. Guess what I did not have? I had no cash flow. So yeah, I had amassed because I'd bought real estate and I'd made other investments and I saved a bunch of money and I put money inside the market that the, the total was a million dollar net worth. It took me basically six years to get there. I'm convinced had I wrote down at that time and $1,000 a month in cash flow, it would have changed how I invested. 
it would have changed my concentration, whether it was investing in the stock market that would produce dividends or buying more real estate that was producing more cash flow versus breaking even. It all, like once you decide what you want, I'm just convinced that the how you get there, the how becomes easier. It becomes more clear to me that if I say I want a net worth of X and I want cash flow of Y that covers all my expenses, hey, I can reduce my expenses, increase my cash flow and get to my goal, or I can keep my expenses where they are and really focus on cash flow. But the bottom line is that's where it all begins in my opinion. Now, I don't know about you, but if you Google right now, like where, where do people sort of in, in, let's just call it in the Western world, they say that 80% of the people end up flat broke. 80% of the people end up, Hector, basically living off their family, living off uh, little to no savings, and ultimately like the federal government. And I would argue in one of the wealthiest times on the planet right now where someone that could have a full-time job and have three side hustles, you know, who could do so, like who could house hack and, you know, buy a four bedroom house, rent out three rooms. There's so many ways you can do it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But 80% of the people end up flat broke. And that to me is just a shame. So is it, is it the lack of information? Is it too much information? Or do they never write down what they were committed to? I'm convinced it's the latter. They say that 15% of the people become wealthy, whatever that means. And you, you know, wealthy is, you know, such a, who knows, right? Is it like $3 million and you paid off your mortgage? I would call that person wealthy, right? Especially if they've got some form of cash flow. And then they say 4%, like point, yeah, 4% become generational wealth, right? Where now their issue is how do I now transfer all this to my kids and, and try and do it without a lot of tax burden? Um, a, a mutual friend of mine passed away recently and, and she was worth about $200 million. They had to, like her, her, her kids are basically dealing with probate. Like it's, this is real issues, right? She, she had set everything up as far as she can go, but she didn't plan to die as early as she did. God bless her. Um, that's a very real issue, right? Generational wealth. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. And then ready? 1% of the people are like transformational wealth, like transformational, like, you know, they could go buy a city <laughs> with me. Like they've just, they've amassed such a fortune. Now, as you hear that, and you think about, you know, the top 1%, by the way, in the US, if you're making $400,000 a year, you're in the top 1%. Like that's the number. If you're in the top 1% of income earners in America, you're making $400,000 a year. Now I can remind everybody that your income is in direct correlation to the value that you deliver the market. So if you have a role that is easily replaced, if you have a role that like the market bears what the market bears, right? If you work at McDonald's, you're not going to make $400,000 a year, right? Like it just is what it is. So even as you're listening to this, right? That whole top 1%, it's $400,000 a year. It's not what you earn. It's what you do with the money. But that's, again, I keep saying I'm getting ahead of myself. It means I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about and I'm only at point number one. So, so maybe just stop for a minute. So I'm, I got three of my teammates in front of me right now. So let's stop. And I would ask you to say, where are you today? What is your net worth today? What is your net worth today? Do you know? Have you thought about it? Right? What, what is your financial? It could just be, hey, I've got this much money in savings and I've got that much in debt, right? And I don't own a home, right? Now, maybe the person listening, that's not you, but talking to a couple of my friends here inside the room. But then the key is to say, okay, so where do I want to be in three years? What do I want it to be in three years, Hector? Then what do I want it to be in five years? Then where do I want to be in 10 years? And then where do I want to be in 20 years? Boy, I wish, 
somebody would have said to me when I was in my 20s that you could decide where you want to be in 20 years. I didn't get that until I was about 30, right? When finally, one of my coaches, Teresa, said to me, let's create a 20-year vision for your life. Let's create a 20-year vision for your finances. Let's create a 20-year vision for the kind of family you want, the relationships you want, the health you want, et cetera. I mean, what a blessing that was to get that advice, but I took action on it. So as you're listening to this, I hope you're not just listening. I hope you're actually like pausing this and saying, all right, I'll go with this. 20 years from now, hey, I want to be worth X. But remember, it's not just X. It's X with cash flow and it's, you know, covering your expenses, covering all your expenses, all your costs of living. If you sat today and you just decided just that and you wrote it up on your bathroom mirror, the house starts to become pretty automatic. You know, okay, well, I probably should stop spending money on dumb shit. I should probably sacrifice a little more. I should probably house hack if I'm buying my first house. I, maybe I should buy a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex, live in the most inexpensive unit, take that one and rent out the balance. And, and it's okay to do that in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's okay to sacrifice to get to what you want. So make sense? So that's all point number one. Let's go to point number two. The thing that I, I look at when I look at all my mentors, they are all obsessed about reading, studying, learning, and asking good questions of people that have more insight and information than they have. So the number two reason why I think most people will never get wealthy is they're afraid to ask. They are sometimes intimidated by the woman who's become wildly successful, who built a monster business. So they're unwilling to say, how did you do it? Can you break it down for me? Before the end of the show, I'm going to give you the 18 questions that my buddy Gino Bafari, the CEO of Home Services, came up with. It's the 18 questions he asks every new person that he's meeting with. It's the 18 questions that helps unpack this person's psychology. And it's a nice way to get started in a new relationship. But then once you have that established relationship, then you can go deeper and say, how did you do it? Why did you do it? Looking back, what were the mistakes you, you know, would avoid? What were the things, the decisions? What was the hardest part? What was the most fun part? You get all that stuff. And what it does is it starts to change your standard. It starts to change your psychology, the way you think about it, right? You have, you have more, if you will, data points in your head when you're looking to make a good decision about creating more wealth, making an investment, buying a piece of property, whatever it may be. So the thing I wrote down is most people avoid it, right? Some people flirt with it, but the wealthiest people, it's an obsession for them. It's an obsession for them to read and to study and to look at market trends and to, you know, to read books about, you know, where the world is going and where it's at now, to not be afraid of things that they don't understand, but to instead say, I don't understand it. I should lean into it. I remember in the early days of like Bitcoin and all that stuff, I was like, I don't get it. So you know what I did? I started calling people I knew that were investing in it when it was like, you know, Bitcoin was like 10 bucks and saying, why? What's the future of this? How are we going to use it in the future? Right. And, and you know what? Candidly, I did not invest in those early days. I did later on, I think primarily because I just, I didn't want to be socially ir irrelevant, if that makes sense. I wanted to be culturally, like it was a part of the zeitgeist, right? You just had to have a taste of it, but it was such a small percentage of my net worth. So when it, you know, flailed as it did, I was like, okay, yeah, that, that stung. It was a lesson learned, but here's my point. Are you obsessed about studying real estate, business, finance, investing in the market, investing in people? Are you obsessed with that or do you flirt with it or do you avoid it? Now, I know as you hear this, 
it just, it blows me away when I, when I talk to people that can tell me everything about the Kardashians except for their business. They can tell me what they wear, how they dress, who they're dating. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the way they structured their business? How many employees does? And what, and they're like, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm like, so you took the time to get obsessed about these iconic figures in our marketplace. I'm obsessed with pickleball. I know everything about the rackets. I know everything about this. I know all the players. And I'm like, that's awesome. I know everything about the NBA. That's awesome. Cool. Why not just put some of that passion, that interest into something that can completely transform your life. Think about it. I'm not saying don't, I like pickleball. I like golf. I like the NBA. I don't really care about the Kardashians, but you know, like I've watched some Netflix shows now and then with my wife. She does often complain that she finds me drifting off to things that I'm more interested in, but that's just, it is what it is. What are you obsessed with? What could you be obsessed with? Where do you find a gap in your understanding of what the wealthiest people do. And what if you just lean into that? I remember watching a show with my boys um, called The Men Who Made America. And someone would be offended because it's just the word men inside there, but it was like JP Morgan. It was like all these iconic people back in the late 1800s that, you know, whether it was oil business or electricity, you know, they, they became so wealthy. And yeah, they, there's no doubt they did some douchebaggy things to get there, right? Like the way they worked with their labor force, created things like the unions, which we have today. Um, it was horrible, but it was fascinating to look and see how these individuals found a problem and solved it. They found a problem and they solved it and they did whatever it took to get there. Sometimes like whatever it took was a little crazy, but there's a lesson inside there. Now I could take the lesson of humanity that you could do it the right way, but the fundamental thing that they all did was they found a major problem and they solved it. Look at the Elon Musks of the world. He sells his first company and he takes all of the profit from it and starts three new businesses, three very different businesses, a solar business, a rocket business, and of course, Tesla. And what did he do? He just obsessed about it. And through that obsession, he built three of the largest companies and created more net worth than, you know, I, I don't know where he ranks today, but it's, it's tremendous, tremendous what he was able to accomplish. That's the kind of obsession. If you just carved out a couple hours every week to just say, I'm going to read more, I'm going to study more, I'm going to lean into people that you know, the, the rich uncle that you have that you're not really connected to or a family member who's done something that you're like, how did you do that? Like, how did you start that business? What did it take? How did you go from zero to 10 investment properties? What did you do to create your first syndication? Like just leaning in and being okay, being okay, being stupid, not having the answers. That's where the real growth begins. When you could say, I don't have an opinion about this. I don't understand. How did you do it? How did you raise the capital? How did you find the deals? What do you say yes to? What do you say no to? What's your buy box? It's these types of questions that, by the way, all the smartest people that I've ever worked with, they all love to share that stuff. And they love to tell stories about the mistakes they made and how they got there. And man, I was in the back of this car and the whole world was falling apart and I was sick as a dog and I had to get up and present. I'm actually thinking of one of my mentors, Bill, who like literally said, I thought I was gonna lose everything. Got a yes, the market turned. We sold out every, you know, uh, every house that we were building at that time and it completely transformed his life. But the lessons and the stories, there's just so much for you and I to learn from that again, it changes your perspective, it changes how you think, it changes your standards. That's what the wealthiest people do. All right, let's go to number three. 
The reason why most people will never create the wealth they want is they don't identify as someone who is deserving of it. They don't identify as someone who can. So Hector, I, I'm just convinced as many people as I've talked to, I just asked the question like, so, so let's talk about money. What's your story? What's your earliest childhood memories about money? And, and I hear it all the time. Never enough cookies in the cookie jar. Parents always argued over money. So I'm like, so, so the most consistent thing was there wasn't enough. And then I say, so tell me about your current situation. And it's interesting. I was, I was really thinking about, I mean, I've talked to so many people doing events and coaching and, you know, Instagram and just, you know, just being a human being as curious as I am. I feel like the, the vast majority of the stories come down to this. Uh, I always seem to lose it. I always see every investment I make, every stock, it seems like when I buy stocks, all the prices go down. And then I'm like, but do you then buy when stocks go down? Because that's called dollar cost averaging. All the money's made in the purchase. And they're like, nope, I stopped buying stocks. Okay, cool. I bought real estate in 2006. I'm not buying real estate again. Like it was a disaster. Like that's just the most consistent thing I hear from them. Now you and I both know the more you say a story, the more it becomes real for you, the more it becomes how you identify yourself. So if you identify as someone that's constantly making bad investments or has historically always seems to lose their money, spend it on dumb shit, go to Vegas, lose like crazy, then go again. Like think about the, just the stupidity of that. Sorry if that's you. Think about that, right? Oh, every time I go to Vegas, I seem to lose my ass. I'm like, don't go to Vegas anymore. Like, why don't you stop doing that? Because the hope of I might be able to, that's actually like point number four, but ready? One is I always seem to lose it. Two is I'm just, I'm really risk adverse. I just, you know, I just, Tom, it's just not my thing. I don't like taking risk. And my response is we take a risk every day we wake up. Every day is a risk. Getting in a car in Dallas at times, Hector, feels like a risk. You with me? Like it's NASCAR on the 75 freeway. So, so this, this risk adverse mentality, and I always want to go to the backstory and say, so where'd that come from? And inevitably I'll hear stories like, well, you know, my parents were serial entrepreneurs and they would either, they'd either be wealthy or broke, wealthy or broke, wealthy or broke. So there I, they would identify with well, if you take a lot of risk, sure, you could be wealthy, but the next day you could be broke. So if I just don't take any risk, I'll just never be broke, but you'll also never be wealthy. So I hear that story a lot. But then the third story I hear is, let me ask you a few more questions. Okay, let's go. And, and I just, I'm just curious for you as you're listening to this. I know like there's a lot of mindset here and psychology here, but I want you to get like, I was just super lucky to, you know, I have a photo of me and Dennis Waitley, right? If you know that name, like that's an old school Earl Nightingale, Nightingale Conan Corporation, audio cassette, uh, you know, author who was just incredible. When you spend enough time with all these extraordinary men and women, they just identify somebody that can. They identify somebody that perseveres, that plays the long game, that isn't about quick money right? They identify as smart investors. They identify as people that ask a lot of questions. I am just convinced being a dad, the one thing I, I hope I did as a father looking at my, my two sons is to help them form an identity of someone that can, to help them form an identity of someone that can. Now, the great news is it really doesn't matter what your identity is today, because what we know is you can change your identity. So I wrote down some, some things that maybe this will resonate for you. Maybe one or two of these is all you need. So I'm going to give you a bunch of things that, that I've done because if, if you asked me when I was, you know, 
kicked out of my last high school before I got my GED and had like purple hair and was driving a Honda 125cc motorcycle, which is like a lawnmower on wheels, living in Costa Mesa, LA off Center Street by the old original Wahoo's Fish Taco, right? And I had a bullet hole in my window that when the sun was basically going down, right? Like I would see, excuse me, coming up in the morning, it made this beautiful rainbow on my wall, like the the way the sun hit the bullet hole in my window. So I think you get a sense for this was not a, uh, this was probably a D apartment building on a scale from A to F. Um, but living there, what I started to understand was you can change your identity. And back then it was because my dad gave me a bunch of audio cassette programs and said basically like, hey, either listen to these or I'm gonna kill you. It was one of those kind of motivating conversations from a parent. But what I got from that was, the truth around who you spend your time with. If you wanna change your identity, you gotta change sometimes the people you're spending all of your time with, the majority of your time with. And at that time, as you can imagine, you know, <clears throat> being a senior in high school, working at a grocery store from midnight to nine, like the people I was hanging out with were people that were like me, a degenerate. Like they were hanging out, partying too much, doing all the wrong stuff, you know, doing all the, like we had a ton of fun, don't get me wrong, it was a ton of fun. But it wasn't a path. Like I had multiple friends die in my early, like, like early 20s, late teens, right? Suicide, murdered, drug overdose. And I know all of us, like, you know, we, we know someone that either you directly or, you know, someone who had that experience. It took some of those moments for me to realize, like, the path that I was on was not the right path. Then the path became, I actually did this exercise. I actually wrote down one day and it was harsh. Um, I forget who gave me the assignment. It may have been one of my buddies at the grocery store. It was one of those, like he was old, he was 30. Um, and he said to me, you should write down the people in your life that like believe in you. You should write down the people in your life that are neutral. And you should write down the people in your life that you think are on the wrong path, like negative. And this guy was like, you know, jock, super athlete. And he was looking at me, I'm like 17. I got a mohawk and I'm purple hair. And he's like, you're such a knucklehead, right? But he saw something in me to be able to say, if you spend less time with the negative people, if you figure out why the people in your life that are neutral, like they're just, they're sort of vanilla, you know what I mean? Like they don't care if you do well, they don't care if you do bad, they just, they kind of just don't care. And then you spend more time with the people that are positive in your life, the people that are doing something. And he didn't describe it as like positive, like Pollyanna. He meant they have purpose. They are moving forward. They're trying to get somewhere. I was like, wow. And I started like thinking about my buddy, Aaron, who you know became a fireman. And like Aaron worked out every day and he was passionate and he looked good and he took care of himself. And he was talking about buying real estate when we were like 19, 18. And I was like, yeah, more time like with people like that and less time with the people that all they wanna do is just be knuckleheads. And it's a hard thing when you're in your teens or in your early 20s to start pushing away those people and not, it wasn't their fault. They were just on a different path. I decided I want something else. So number one thing is you need to start cultivating one to two slightly wealthier than you people in your life. So if I asked you just to stop and say, okay, who are some people that are in my life that are just three, four, five steps ahead? They don't, you don't want them like 500 steps ahead because it's unrelatable, right? You're like, I just bought, you know, my first house and they own 1200 doors, right? It's an unrelatable conversation, Hector, to go straight to there, but to go, 
hey, you bought your first house and then you refinance, pull some cash out and you bought a second home and made your other one a rental property. Tell me how you did that. Oh, you now own three rental properties. Tell me how you did that. You start cultivating some of those relationships and now all of a sudden your identity begins to shift because they see you the way you want to be seen. They're like, I can do it, you can do it. And that little like subtle shift is the beginning of an identity switch. I wrote down, who are you willing who are, who are you willing to reach out to in the next couple of weeks that are a little outside of your comfort zone, that are just a couple steps ahead of you to start cultivating that relationship? Can we meet once a month for coffee? Can we, you know, what books are you reading? You know, can I share with you the things that I'm learning? I'd love to learn more from you. And you, you form that relationship, right? It could be around pickleball. I don't know. It could be around something you're passionate about, but your real mission is to extract what it is that they're doing that got them there so you can do it faster. Second thing I wrote down is you should be joining groups, reading, listening, learning. Um, I was thinking like this morning, I watched two episodes on the Shark Tank, right? So, you know, I'm like literally getting ready in the morning and I'm watching Shark Tank and I'm thinking to myself, I just love, like the number of people I know that watch Shark Tank is bigger than the number of people I know that know anything about the Kardashians. Does that make sense? And I'm not dogging the Kardashians because they've obviously created a massive fortune with all kinds of interesting influence. But my point is, like, I can watch the Shark Tank and go, oh, that's an interesting idea. And it gives me two more. I can say, oh, why did Mark say yes to this? Why does, you know, Mr. Wonderful always try and structure a deal this way versus that way? And here I'm watching a little YouTube clip for eight or nine minutes of just one, you know, piece of an episode. And I'm absorbing that information. But then I also wrote down, can you join groups, investment clubs? Can you join networking groups that are focusing on this? You know, there's in every nook and cranny around the world, there is a stock market club, there's a real estate investing club, there's a small business group, there's all these groups. And again, I just say, like attracts like, spend time with more people like that, and you're going to shift your identity. The third thing I wrote down is, um, this is the third, excuse me, the fourth major point, fourth major point. But first, are you gonna do the assignment? Write down exactly what you want right? Get super clear on that. Realize that we all have a story. You can change your story. You're going to identify two or three people to say, I'm going to go spend more time with them. What are they doing? And by the way, the older ones are better. The ones with a little more gray hair, right? Or a little less hair, or like my stepmom who dyes her hair, right? The more experience they have, the better because they've been through market cycles, ups, downs, you know, like catastrophe, all that's what I want to learn from. Okay. Major point number four, write this down. My wealthiest friends don't chase fast money. They have no interest in it. Fast money makes them nervous. Like if it's too easy, if it's too good to be true, you could probably finish that statement. It very rarely is. If anything, fast money creates fast losses, right? The people that I'm spending time with all are focused on the long game. Is this piece of real estate today going to be worth more as I improve the incremental value of the property? Is it going to be worth more in a year? Sure. Could it be worth more in three to five years? Yes. How about 20 years? In 20 years, I'm going to look back and say that apartment building was a steal. 
Hey, it's Tom Ferry. Question, what's your favorite social media platform? Are you big on Insta? Do you love to tweet? No matter where you answer, I'd love for you to connect with me there. All you gotta do is just type in at Tom Ferry and follow and let's you and I connect. I wanna be able to deliver the right content, the right ideas, the ways to help you grow your business, stay fired up, keep moving, be in action and run plays that work and the platform that matters most to you. So subscribe and I'll see you there soon. I think about um, my mentor, Bill Mitchell. He had the good fortune to work with a guy named Donald Brand, who's one of the wealthiest people on the planet, owns a company called the Irvine Company in Southern California, and they've got you know buildings and holdings everywhere. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of wealth created. He told me the story of how Don got involved and bought a piece of the Irvine Company, excuse me, bought the Irvine Company with a small piece of his own money, but leveraged other people's money. And then when the market turned, right, and got really bad in the early 80s, he was able to buy all of his partners out for, you know, all of this is documented. You can Google it, several hundred million dollars. And then you take a several hundred million dollar asset in the 80s and you compound it out to 2023 and it's made him one of the wealthiest people on the planet one of the wealthiest people on the planet, the long game, the long game. So get two, you know, two people, Hector, how old are you? 35. And then Jordan, 25, 23. So I've got 23, 25 and 35 in the room, the long game, the long game. Now everyone listening knows, cause you, you hear about people like Warren Buffett, like, yes, I drink, you know, whatever this drink is. So I invested in that company and I've owned it for 25 years. And the 25 year return on that stock is bananas. I'm sure someone's listening like, yeah, but I'm like, man, I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of into the day trading thing and I like the in and out. So um, I read, and you should Google this. I read that there are 12 days in every 365 day year that make or break the entire stock market. 12 days, 12 days. No one ever knows when they're going to happen, Hector, right? But there's 12 days that make or break the entire year in the stock market. So what if you miss one of those days? So when I was going through this, you know, content, I was looking at this material and I don't want to misquote the numbers. You should Google this. It was super interesting, but essentially it said, if you miss one of those days, your return goes from here to here. And if you, if you only are listening to me, I just, I dropped it down by an inch. But if you miss a couple of those days, like your return goes to next to nothing. So I don't know about you. Like I, I own stock. It's in companies that I believe in. It's in companies that I can read about and understand and like find out what the CEO is committed to, find out what the management team is committed to, what's their cash balance situation, what investments are they making. It's not an obsession the way it is for my wife who loves it and that's okay. But it's all about the long game. It's all about buy and wait, right? And now you could say, no, I figured it out. I know when the 12 days are. And if you do, please DM me because I would love to pick your brain on that. I'd love to learn more how you figured that out. And I want to know how many hundreds of millions of dollars you are worth because you figured that out. Play with me here. All right. So you ready? All my wealthiest friends play the long game. It's buy and wait. It's buy and wait. It's buy and hold. It's even, even like, so I invest in a lot of startup companies and when I really got obsessed around this, I remember sitting with Tony Robbins and then shortly thereafter sitting with Gary Vaynerchuk. And, and basically the conversation was like, Tony, like I'm investing in companies that I believe in and then they become sponsors of my events. I was like, that's a good idea. And now I do the same thing. Not every one of the companies that sponsors my event, but many of those companies that I believe in them so much. It's like there was, a, there was this old Gillette Razor commercial. The, the guy that bought the business said, I like Gillette Razor so much, I bought the company. 
Like, think about that. I liked the Gillette razor so much after I bought the company. That was like the ad. And, and, you know, for some of my older timers, right, you'll remember that ad. That was Tony's model, right? Where Gary's model was, I can invest in these companies and I can provide resources, insight, influence, more investors. And I was like, I like that. I can do that too. But understanding investing in startups where the risk reward is pretty, like, it's pretty significant. Like if you have a hundred companies in your portfolio, which I have, you're going to have seven or eight of them go out of business every single year. You're going to have one or two dying because they can't raise capital. And you're like, man, we took this thing pretty far and it's starting to work. But right now the capital markets suck. And it's unless you want to take a massive write down on the value of your business, which means all the investors and the employees and everybody just gets screwed over, which happens every single day, then, you know, we got to figure it out, right? Do we cut expenses? It's, it's a, it's a very, I would say for me, fun for some people, stressful, business environment as an investment strategy. But when they hit, when they're TrueCar or Slack or others that hit, it more than pays for itself. And you hope that on the end of it, that you invested a dollar and you made a buck fifty, two dollars $5. But when I say to my wife, it, every one of these deals, it's a 10-year investment because it takes 10 years to build a good business. 10 years to build a good business. As a CEO of a company, as an owner of your team, as an owner of your business, it takes 10 years before you actually really figure out the business. You figure out your product, you figure out your customers, you figure out your systems, you figure out the mechanics, you figure out the financials. It's the long game. It's the long game. My biggest mistake was the second company I invest in sold in 90 days. And I thought, oh, I'm hot shit. Then I realized, no, I just got lucky, right? Thanks. Big shout out to Kelly Perdue, by the way, Moonshot Capitals. He's like, you should invest in this deal. Me and your dad both invested in the deal. Nine days later, they sold. I was like, I'm a pretty good startup investor. Then like, I think like the next five all died within like a year and a half. And I was like, oh, I'm a typical startup investor. Now with that said, that's a whole other conversation. We're talking about, you know, being risky here. It's all about the long game. Please write that down. It's not about the dollar you make today. It's not about the dollar you invest today. It's what happens to it in the next three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. If you just bought a bunch of houses in 2007, eight, nine, 10, what are they worth today? If you bought a, a fourplex or a 20plex or a 200plex in May of 2020, when the world was falling apart, what happened to the value of that property? We know what happened. It skyrocketed. So I just, I hope as you're listening to this, and I know I'm talking about it a lot and a lot and a lot, it's just the long game. So I wrote down, ready? What's the long game? 10 to 20 years. That's my mindset. For most of us, it's just buy real estate and wait. It's put money in the market and let the market do its thing, right? Asset allocation, all that kind of stuff. I covered that in my other video. I'm not getting any of that stuff today. I'm just talking about the mindset. Then I wrote down for you, spend an hour every single week getting clear on where the market's going, where are their opportunities. And if I were you, especially if you're a real estate practitioner, I would challenge you to write an offer on a property every week. I would challenge you to find the deal in your marketplace every single week. Tom, there's no inventory. Shut up. There's always property, right? Maybe the deal is 20, 30 minutes outside of town. Maybe the deal is it's a SFR, but it's sitting on a lot that's zoned for a triplex or a fourplex or an eightplex. 
maybe that's the opportunity. And sure, the cost to acquire it, you're like, oh, they're really trying to get a premium on this. Well, of course they are, because they know the moment you buy that thing, you're gonna scrape it, and you're gonna build one, two, three, four, five, six, seven units on that, and you're gonna sell that for a profit or turn it into a multifamily you know, situation. You don't always have to have the cash. What I'm trying to get you to understand is, be on the hunt for deals, find opportunities. Whoever finds opportunities can tie it up and flip it to somebody else. You could say, I'll take my entire commission from this deal, put it into the deal, and you, Mr. Developer, you, Mrs. Developer, you go finish it, and I'll just take the listings on the back end, and I'll ride my commission into the deal and take a return on that. Now, all of a sudden, you're making exponentially more than just the commission, and yeah, sure, it may take 18 months to two years. Who cares? We're playing the long game. All right, let me go to the next major point. Number five. Hard to argue that this isn't one of the most important things that I learned from everybody. And it is, I think it's the, I don't know if I would say, it's gotta be one of the top five reasons why most people never make it. It is number five, most are just unwilling to sacrifice. They're unwilling to sacrifice. They're so busy buying dumb shit, the next iPhone, the next thing that they don't need, releasing another car versus just buying the car and just owning it for a while right? And just saying, it is what it is. I don't need a new car every three or four years, right? Unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to sacrifice. How many stories have you heard of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that sacrifice like crazy to put you in the position that you're in today? The vast majority of people are just unwilling to, they need everything right now. They have so much FOMO, so much fear of missing out or worse, I started to write down, um, they, man, let's go back to sacrifice. Think about all the people that sacrificed to get people into college for the first time, to be the first one to go to college, to start a business. They had a full-time job and they started a business. They bought their first house. Like I think about my, my in-laws who bought a house in like Anaheim, California for like $14, right? In like, I don't even, 1950, something like that on a VA loan and it was a stretch, and then just held it forever. They made the sacrifice. I know you could, you could say, Tom, I've made some sacrifices. Did you make sacrifices when things were really good, or did you make sacrifices when things were tight? I'm talking about the willingness to make sacrifices, to not get over your skis, to not just continually rack up credit card debt or buy things on credit that you know you can't afford in the moment, I'm talking about some of those sacrifices. Maybe it's like making your own coffee versus always buying Starbucks, right? It's those kind of sacrifices that over time you go, well, $4 a day doesn't matter, but times $4 a day or $4 a day times 365 days and sometimes twice. And I'd rather see that money in a money market account or, you know, trying to buy my first piece of real estate as an example. So here's what I wrote down. You ready? If you go back to thinking you're rich, I want to say it was, um, it was like number two or number three in the book. He said, Napoleon Hill said, you have to write yourself a letter talking about your definite major purpose. I want to be worth this much money in this time period with this much cash flow, covering all of my expenses by this time period. And then the balance of the letter is about the sacrifices and the work you're willing to do to realize that goal the sacrifices and the work you're, re, you know, you're really willing to do to realize that goal. So it's so funny, like when I was with all my clients in, in Vegas, I literally said to them, sacrifice, like 
having 10 meaningful conversations a day is probably a sacrifice to the vast majority of real estate professionals. I don't want it to. I don't have any time for it. Shut up. The more meaningful conversations you have, you have 10 meaningful conversations every single day. Five opportunities of those 10 will be an opportunity for you to serve someone else. Hey, Hector, you told me you needed this. I got a guy for you. I got a gal for you. I know the hookup. Let me, let me connect you. Those five is you just doing good for others. And of those, two opportunities will be there for you to do business. So from 10 meaningful conversations a day, I know you'll get two opportunities for business. Now, the opportunity could be Hector wants to buy a house outside of my marketplace and I'm going to refer him to another agent and get a referral fee. Or it could be, hey, Hector just told me in four years when his kids graduate, that'd be funny at 35, but just playing along, that in four years when his kids graduate, he wants to downsize from the big house to a smaller house and not tell his children where he moved to, right? So I don't care if it's four years from now or next week, there is always an opportunity. But it's so funny for me that people say, I just, I'm too busy or I'm not comfortable. I don't know what to say. They just give me every excuse in the book. And I say, I know what it is. You just are more committed to being broke than you are to being wealthy. Do you hear what I just said? Wealthy people do whatever it takes. They remove the feeling from it and they do the work. They do the work, whatever is required to achieve the results, to serve more clients, to make a difference, to create an impact, to create more revenue, to invest more. Maybe that's just the sacrifice you need to make. I got a fun one. If you have kids, say to your kids, I would love for you to have everything you want, but I am unwilling to make phone calls every day. So that's why you're not going to have it. And you're just going to have to figure it out on your own. Say that to your children and watch how they respond. On the flip side, say to your kids, hey, listen to me. I need to go and have 10 meaningful conversations a day and I want to sell this many homes and I want to save this much money. And if I'm able to have this, these conversations every day, hold me accountable, seven-year-old, hold me accountable, 12-year-old. If I sell this many homes and I save this much money, we're going to talk about saving. There's money after taxes. This is the dollar amount I want. When we get there at the end of the year, you will be rewarded in the following way. We will go to Orlando and go to Disneyland and we'll have a wonderful family vacation. But if mom doesn't have 10 meaningful conversations a day, doesn't sell 24 homes and doesn't save after taxes this much money, we can't go. What is your five and 12 year old going to do nonstop? Did you, did you have a conversation mommy? Mommy, I just drove by a for sale by owner and I knocked on their door for you on my big wheel. Like you will create so much structure but what are we really doing? We're teaching our kids the value of setting a goal, working towards it, delaying the gratification. It's 12 months from now. You put the vision board up on the wall, right? And could, this, could the same thing be to buy our first investment property, to set aside X amount of cash and buy REITs? So you're, you know, you're investing in publicly traded real estate assets that give you dividends as an example. The answer is whatever you decide for it to be. But what I really want you to get is you got to sacrifice. You got to be willing to sacrifice. So um, I literally wrote down, you know, is it eat out less than you currently do? Is it sell the big ass house that you're in and downsize to something more reasonable, take the cash and go make investments? Is it cashing out and buying two investment properties and living in a condo? Like, what is the sacrifice you need to make? Is it your $1,800 a month car payment, right? That just as easily, like I, I have a buddy who is worth so much money, it is ridiculous. 
and he drives a Jaguar, and I want to say it's like an 85 or 86, that he must have paid off. And he didn't go buy, like he bought it in 85 or 86. And every time I see him, that's the car he drives. Like he's like, I don't care. It gets me from here to here. And he'll make fun of me because I have, you know, I have a couple of nice cars, but my cash flow pays for my cars. Do you hear me? My cash flow pays for my cars. That's the key, right? Important distinction. And he still busts my chops on it and says, Fair, you should sacrifice more if you really want your family to be right. And I'm like, okay, Joe, I got it. All right. You know, you know, you know, you know. Okay, let's go number six. Number six, and we're almost at the end. The number six reason why people will never kind of create the wealth that they really deserve, and I do believe you deserve it, is they don't ask for help. They don't ask for help. They don't ask for help. Or worse, or worse, they ask the wrong people for advice. You with me on this? Don't ask people that always lose their money and make shitty investments about investing. Ask people that are willing to tell you that's stupid, that's a bad idea, or let's unpack that together. Send me the contract. Let's review it. That's your dad. Send me the contract. Let's review it. Let's figure that like he loves contracts, right? Like it's, he obsesses over the smallest little details to make sure that he is protected, the family's protected, the deal's protected, et cetera. If you're unwilling to ask for help, if you're unwilling to ask for help, you're just going to make bad decisions. I had a coach that uh, used to work for me and nice guy, known him for a long time. When, when I was in the early days of 10 years ago investing in startups, he's like, I, I want to do that. And I was like, okay, how much cash do you have set aside that you could lose? And if you lost it, you wouldn't care. It would sting, but you wouldn't care because that's the only way you want to do it if you're investing in startups. Otherwise, you should be buying more real estate. No, no, no. You know, you know. It, like he had this like get rich quick mentality. He, he didn't ask for help. I, because I love him, was saying, what's your buy box? You got to decide what you're going to say yes to. What's your criteria? What are the questions that you ask before you invest in them? And by the way, I should probably share those eight questions. Maybe not on this show. Maybe we'll do it on another show. But there's eight questions I ask every person that, that pitches me on their company. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm prodding him because I love him, but I can just feel the resistance. He just did not want to listen to me. And then he called me. Hey, so I invested in that company and I was like, oh yeah, the, the weed transportation business in Canada. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you know, I passed on that. He's like, no, man, I think it's going to really be hot. I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, did you ask him about this, 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 and this? Did you see how, how easily disruptable that business is? Like the supply chain situation? Like, did you ask any? He's like, no, but like, I really got hot and I met with the guy and he made a compelling offer and he told me he's going to sell the business right away. And I'm, I literally... I wanted to punch myself in the face because I couldn't get across to a friend of mine how bad of a mistake he had made. Then he told me how much cash he put into it and I almost threw up because it was like half of all the cash he had, which is the exact opposite of what anyone I know who invests in startups would ever do. Nobody I know would risk that much. Now you could say, well, you don't know Elon Musk and he did it. I get it. This guy is not Elon Musk. He is not going to go to the library and read every single book you could read on how to build a rocket ship. So he understood the engineering, you know, mechanics of it all. Like this guy wasn't doing that. He was going for the get rich quick. He didn't ask for help. And as you can probably imagine, that business folded within about nine months. So his entire investment, and it was a, it was a six figure investment, gone. How many stories do we need to hear 
about people that were unwilling to set their ego aside and just say, what do you think? Shoot some holes in this. I was on the phone this morning with a board member of mine telling me about a company that, I, that I'm enamored by. That would be the way I would describe it. I'm enamored by the CEO. I think he is, he could be an excellent number two. I'm not convinced he's a number one, but he could be an excellent number two. So I say to my board member, I'm going to tell you about this deal. Talk me out of it. And I told him everything about the deal. He talked me out of it in three minutes. I was like, yep, you're right. Okay, cool. Next, move on. Now, I know way more about the deal. I could be super enamored by it. I could be super passionate about the opportunity. I could even think I could fix that individual. But I'm willing to ask someone who's smarter than me, who's done more deals than I have, hey man, this is what I'm thinking about it. I didn't say, let me tell you about the deal. I said, talk me out of it. And he did in three minutes. You have to be willing to ask for help. So here's my note. You ready? Very tactically, I hope you're writing this down. You guys, you guys ready? You need to build or cultivate your net worth inner circle. You need to build or cultivate your net worth inner circle, right? Like this for me is like my unofficial net worth mastermind. So, so I won't say names, but some of you will know. So tax strategist, gotta have a tax strategist. Every deal I look at, I call my tax strategist first. Hey Manny, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? What do I need to pay attention to? Would you review the contract? Do I need to create a separate LLC for this? Can I put this inside this one? How do I make sure that how, how, how? Help me, help me, help me, help me. Ask, ask, ask. And Manny, I love you if you're listening. I love you, right? Then I ask my attorneys. I have two. I have a like a contracts attorney who's been with me for 26 years. And then I have my really expensive, scary attorney that you never want to go against you. And, but he is... He sells pieces of the Yankees. He's been, he was part of the Los Angeles Rams coming to California. Like he's a big dog, right? And, and dependent upon the situation, I'll call sometimes both of them and say, I'm thinking about doing this. How should I structure it? What do you recommend? Or I call the other one, the really expensive one. And I say, I know you're charging me like $11 million per second. So let's do this really fast, right? I'm thinking about this, 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 this. What do I need to know? Well, Tom, that's how he talks. Like he just elongates everything so he can charge me like, you know, $1,000 a second, right? But I say that because you got to have two. You got to have two. You got to have experts. Now, for me, these are deal attorneys. They do M&A work, right? They know good contracts. They know how to structure things. They, they make sure that I'm good, the other investors are good, and my new partner who I'm you know buying into, that they're good. He wants everybody taken care of. Um, real estate investors, right? Claude, Kirk, Pua, Eric, right? Those are my four. My dear friend, Claude, you call. Big shout out to Claude. Eric, who is my partner in real estate syndications. We've now, I think we've acquired nearly 500 units in the last year. Eric owns 1,200 units. This is all he does. I was seeking him out. I wanted a partner like that, right? Pua, my mom, who, it, like, she's just a deal junkie, right? Like, some people like, it's like about milk and cookies when they were raised, she was just real estate. Like she loves it. So we talk a lot like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about buying this. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What are the holes? Kirk Kessel is one of my closest friends on the planet. Big shout out to Kirk. I love you. If you're in my network, you've probably seen Kirk and you know me hanging out at events. Kirk is also someone that has done land deals, developed, built high rises, sold them off, uh, tree farms, shopping centers, apartment buildings, single family residence. He's done it all. 
So to say to him, I'm looking at this deal. What do you see? What are the holes? He says, send me the contract. Let's look at the numbers. Like they go deep and they get gritty with me. This is your build and cultivate your net worth inner circle. Business investors, uh, investors Spencer Raskoff, Greg, Cor uh, Greg Schwartz, Kelly Perdue, Joe Hanauer, Steve Azonian. I have like five people. I said I was going to say names. And I'm like just dropping all these names. So you should follow all these people. Um, literally, I'll just, hey, I'm looking at this. What do you think? Like Spencer's fantastic. If you know Spencer, he was the former CEO of Zillow, uh, .LA. He's invested in a bunch of companies. He was really the one that got me to think differently about the questions that I'm asking, right? Like he, he, stop doing small deals. Only think about unicorns, right? Like stuff like that where I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, why invest in a company that, sure, they can go from zero to $20 million in revenue. You know, why not find companies that can go from zero to a billion dollars in revenue? Like focus on large addressable markets, focus on large problems you can solve. I'm like, oh, I love you. Kelly, who I've done a bunch of deals with, Kelly, thank you so much. Kelly, I'm like, Kelly, what's your, what's your like buy box? He's like, we only invest in military led businesses. I was like, tell me more about that. He's like, I was a part of the president's fellow. I'm a 20 year veteran, West Point grad. He's like, my network, the only thing we focus on is military-led businesses because those men and women, it's like succeed or die. Like literally, that's how he described it to me. And then he told me all the criteria and I'm like, yes. So I'll call them and say, I'm looking at this, what do you think? Looking at this, what do you think? Who are the people in your life that as you're seeing opportunities that either you can afford to invest in or you can't, it doesn't make a difference. When you hear about stuff, you gotta have a group of people that you can just reach out to and say, what do you think? right? Because they may say stupid idea, which they say to me all the time, or, Hey, that will actually de derail you. You're going to spend too much time there. You already have a full-time gig as a CEO of Ferry International and CSI, right? I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. Right? So you need those people that will tell you no, or give you the questions or look at the contracts or give you insight. So you can make better decisions, more calculated risk. Um, obviously bankers, you got to have bankers on your side. Like, it's so funny, like when I look at deals now, like real estate specifically, I call my two bankers and I'm like, I'm looking at this deal. Let's talk about creative ways we can finance it. What's out there? Should we be doing a HUD loan, a 35 year amp? Like, I'm, I'm just asking, what, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Right? And, and they will, you know, because this is all they do for a living. Well, be careful about this. Maybe look at the way structuring this way. Who else is involved in it? I guess what I'm really telling you is I'm not that smart. I think that's the summary, Hector. I'm not that smart. And yet I was smart enough to know if I cultivate a bunch of really smart people around me, that takes time. These are all like 10, 15, 20, 30 year relationships that we invest together. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes they tell me I'm a knucklehead. Sometimes I, I probably try and oversell the deal. I'm super excited about it. And they just like punch me in the face. You have to have people... In my, you don't have to. My argument would be for you that when you do put these people in place in your life, and and I could tell you, like, with all these people, I'm a gift giver. I I bring them value, Hector, in other ways because they bring me so much value. So I'm constantly looking for ways that I could help them, support them, uh, charities they're interested in you know, bring him a bottle of their favorite wine, whatever it may be. And, and that might just be a way for you to think about like, how do you cultivate these relationships? But I want to give you the 18 questions. So I got to put my thumb over here. 
So I'm going to take a little side note because someone's going to ask, like, what are the questions I should ask? How do I build relationships with these people? So there are 18 questions. Shout out to Gino Blafari, my, my personal client, friend for, my goodness, like 32 years. I cold called him when he was an agent to invite him to come to one of my dad's seminars. And he said yes. And he came up with these 18 questions as a way to get to know someone, to go deeper with someone, to, to understand why they do what they do. So here's the 18 questions for all my coaching clients. These are inside a loom. Just go to the search bar, type in 18 questions, and it's the same PDF I'm looking at. So here they are. Ready? So Hector, what do you do? How'd you get started? Uh, where are you originally from? What else do you do besides work? Uh, what's your current family situation? What was your family situation growing up? Think about that question. What was your family situation growing up? You learn a lot about people when they unpack the answer to that question. Um, what kind of memories do you have about your childhood, right? What, uh, what's one memory that really stands out? Were you active in school? That's another question. Question number 10, uh, who, were, uh, who from your childhood had the biggest impact on you? Who from your childhood had the biggest impact on you? Um, what did that person teach you? That's question number 11. 12, as you look at your life as a radar scope, there were some ups and there were some downs. What were one of the highs? What were one of the highs? And all of a sudden they're like, oh my, again, this happened to me, that happened to me. You know, like they, they give you that. And then you say, so what does that tell you about yourself? What does that tell you about yourself? That moment, that high. And then you ask, what were one of the lows? And what got you through that low? That's question number 15. Question number 16. If a young person asked you for advice on how to live your life, what would you tell them? Right? And they just, blah, 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 blah. it's fascinating the, the answers that I've received that I've cultivated and, and stored in this little data brain of mine. 17. So what does the future hold for you? And 18. When your life is over, how do you want to be remembered? You take the time to ask someone those 18 questions, you're going to learn more about that individual. You, you could ask those 18 questions to someone that works with you side by side every single day. Hector, if you and I went through those 18 questions, we would learn so much more about each other just like that. Let's do that in two weeks when I'm back here, right? Ellie, you and I should do that. Jordan, you and I should do that. Jordan, you and Ellie should do that. Like, like I'm just convinced if you take the time to ask thoughtful questions, especially to someone that you, you're looking for a mentor-like relationship with, they're going to be open to answering these questions. And if you're doing what I always do, which is like, do you mind if I take notes? And they all say, you don't have to take, no, no, no. Like, it's better for me if I capture it because I really want to, like, I want to get this. There is something about that when I'm sitting in front of somebody who's 20 years younger than me and I'm, ask, I'm asking these questions and I'm taking notes on the story of their life like they're blown away, but try that with someone that's 20 and 30 years my senior. And they're like, you want to record this? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love, would you mind? Like, that would be amazing. I, I want to make sure you, you're comfortable sharing. Well, let's turn the recorder off. Let's just go, right? And I'm just getting all the information, trying to understand who they are, how they got here. What were the highs? What were the lows? What were the lessons? Then at that point, don't you think it'd be obvious to say, so what do you invest in? And how did you get started? And what were some of the early mistakes? And what were some of the victories? And looking back over your life, what are some of the adjustments you would have made? Knowing what you know now, what would you have invested in for the long term? What would you have passed on for the long term? Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. One of my favorite questions, what's your buy box? 
What do you say yes to? What do you say no to? Right? I uh, I pitched a deal recently. Um, I don't know if I should talk. I'll, I'll, whatever. I'll go. I'll be risky. So a friend of mine created a method that just got FDA approval for trials. This is going to be insane that I'm even talking about this on the podcast. Duma. Right? So my former boat partner and dear friend of now 22 years, his wife and my wife were in a mommy and me group. That's how we met. And uh, funny enough, like how random is that, right? And he, he's a brain surgeon. He got FDA approval. He's now raising capital because he has FDA approval to go to a phase one trial where they open up somebody's brain, put a uh, patent pending tube directly into the open part of your brain, and they take stem cells, run it through their process, now a patent pending drug, and they put it inside that person's brain. And we have early, early signs of solving ALS, Alzheimer's, and parts of dementia. Do you realize how insane that is? And, and if you watch the video, because I got the deck, and you know, he's a friend, he's like very, I'm like, I'm in, man. Like my wife is obsessed with this stuff because anything that like could cure something as insanely tragic as brain disease for a loved one, I mean, like that just, that's called solve a major problem. You solve a major problem, you can change a piece of the world. You could change one person's life or millions of people's lives every single year. So I'm like, yes, let, let's try this. Super risky, right? I'm not telling you to invest it. I'm just telling you a story. But here's the thing. So I sent it to two guys I know in my building that I'm really tight with. And these guys are worth a lot of money. And I sent it to them both. And I'm like, look, this is my buddy. You've heard me talk about him. Da, 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 da. Take a look at this deck. Tell me what you think. Shoot some holes in it. See you guys in a couple of days. Right? One responds immediately back and says, nope, not in my buy box. Not interested. Right? And I was like, man, good on you. And I won't say his name because he's a very... I'll just say kind of famous person. He's like, nope, not my buy box, Barry, but let's play golf on Friday, right? Like that was how fast he made a decision. I love that because he knows his buy box. The other one said, feels kind of risky, but it also feels transformational. We're gonna be on a plane together in a couple of days. Can you tell me more about him and like, like help me understand more? Can we get a meeting? I was like, well, that's interesting. Now here's my point. You cultivate this incredible network of people you ask a lot of good questions, you go deep with them, you understand how they operate, what their systems are, what their structure is, what their mindset is, what their buy box is, and that guess what you can do? You can literally get them to peel back the layers and help you understand how to make good decisions. I guess that's really what the show is really all about, right? Being that was like the last major point. Okay, so as I wrap, I can't wait. Um, you know, I actually had two more points. I'm gonna keep going. Number seven, I'll do it fast. Most people avoid conversations because they're intimidated by wealthy people. Ask the 18 questions, you'll be fine. Most people are, they avoid the conversation because they're intimidated by wealthy people. They're unwilling to say, hey ma'am, how'd you do it? Hey, can I buy you coffee? Hey, can I ask you a question? Unwilling to DM them on Instagram or as I just did recently with the CEO of a publicly traded company who lives, Jordan, near me on that lot that I was showing you. And I was like, I'm just going to go on LinkedIn and say, hey man, I just bought a piece of dirt near you. Would love to pick your brain on, you know, the community, the development. Blah, blah. Two seconds later, he responds. I can't tell you the name of the company, but this guy is a bananas baller. Like the fact that he even responded to me on LinkedIn, even I was like, holy shit. But I sent the message in LinkedIn. 
a little, hey man, I know you built this and I know you're doing that and I bought this one and I'm just curious, can I pick your brain? You know, architects, builders, designers, developers, lessons, yada, yada, yada. He's like, sure, anytime. Here's my cell. Like, you have to be willing to ask. You have to be willing to ask and accept the fact that not everybody's going to be like that guy that just said yes to me. A lot will say, no, I'm too busy or call my assistant, schedule a meeting or what is this pertaining to? Or they just will ghost you and not respond at all. That never stops me from asking. Here's my last one. You ready? Um, number seven. I think it's actually number eight. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, the very famous comedian. Kevin Hart said it best. He said, you have to get into the right rooms and show up curious. Did you listen to that interview? It was one of my favorite interviews. He, he was interviewed by Joe Rogan. There's so many lessons in Kevin Hart's story. And this is the one where he's wearing the blue sweater, light blue sweater. And he's talking about, you know, healing from his back surgery. But then he talked about his process, his 18 month journey for every new, um, like live comedic act that he would create. For that alone, I tell everyone that wants to be a great speaker or an author to listen to that podcast because it's bananas. But the thing I love the most is he said, I wasn't raised in an environment of awareness. I had to seek out knowledge. I had to get behind the doors of these other rooms where all this cool shit was happening. And he's like, so as I became more and more successful, I became more and more curious. Most people, when they become more and more successful, become less curious. They come all about themselves. And he's like, I remember being at the Super Bowl and literally saying, oh my God, Jeff Bezos just walked inside that room. And he's telling his buddy, he's like, I'm gonna go talk to Jeff Bezos. And his buddy's like, no, 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 man, we don't do that, man. Like, And like, I, I forget the way he described it, but he was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, that's Jeff Bezos. That guy's like changed the world. I'm gonna go talk to him. And he said, I go in through the door and he goes, I look and there's Robert Kraft, there's Tom Brady. They just won the Super Bowl. Robert Kraft saying all these nice things about Tom Brady. Tom Brady saying all these nice things about Robert Kraft. Jeff Bezos is there and he walks up and you can listen to the podcast, introduces himself, just said, Jeff Bezos, Kevin Hart, just want to say hi. I'm not gonna ask any questions, but sometime in the future, man, I just want you to know who I am and I would love to connect with you. I love that. I love that. And I hope you do too. I hope you listen to that episode. It was it was like two hours of just unpacked goodness on Kevin Hart's part. Big shout out to Kevin Hart. All right, so that's what I got. I have no idea how long that was. Hector, I know we have a bunch of other stuff we had to film. Um, I don't even know how this is gonna be taken by people. I'm gonna, I guarantee I'm gonna get some people know that are just like, screw you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, and, and I love it because it's the same thing that happened on my YouTube video. And I'm like, this is what the wealthiest people do. I don't care what you think. This is just, this is what the data is, right? So this is just this is just my experience, my tiny little brain experience of trying to figure out what the wealthiest people do and then emulate those behaviors and see where it all lands. See where it all lands. I'll leave you with one last point. What if I told you in 2015, I wrote out a 20-year financial plan for myself and my family, 20 years. And I said, here's my net worth today. And I literally hand wrote out a 1% increase in my net worth quarter by quarter for 20 straight years. So we're in 2023. Technically, we're like seven years and a couple months in. What if I told you I'm basically at year 10 right now? Because I took the time to write out, this is what I want to accomplish. This is what my mindset is. It is not my only obsession. I've got a lot of obsessions, but this is something that it's a game for me. 
It's a game. It's money does not make me who I am. Money just reveals who you are. Money gives us the opportunity to go create an orphanage in Africa, right? Which Ellie, you and your, your dad and all of us from the school, like we were all a part of that. It's the ability to donate money to Breast Cancer Research Foundation or to, to do the things that, that I get passionate about, right? So we know some people that they get money and they just become dickheads, but those people were already dickheads. They just became dickheads with money. That should be the moment, by the way, that goes on Instagram. Don't be a dickhead with money. I just want to challenge you. This is just one of many pieces of equity of your life, your health, your family, right? Your business, your intellect, your money, your contribution, right? Your travels, your life experiences. This is just one. But I would just argue that if you're listening right now, you are the kind of person that can. So the next time I see you in an event, the next time I see you, just say, hey, I listen to that podcast. I'm cultivating my list. Here's what my net worth goal is. This is what I want to accomplish. This is what my cash flow goal is. This is what I'm doing. And I listen to a whole bunch of that stuff. I'm changing my identity. I'm doing this. And I'm going to give you the biggest hug and say, I am so proud of you. Keep doing the work. Play the long game. You'll be super glad that you did. All right. I can't wait to see the comments. I'll see you guys soon. Thanks so much for watching. If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again and talk to you soon.